Hello and welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Steel Sports Podcast, the podcast that puts kids first. For all those first-time listeners joining us, thanks for giving us a go. If you love all things sports like we do, you're definitely in the right place. I'm your host, Nathan Clinkenbeard, and I'm definitely excited for this episode. We've talked to so many different former athletes in a wide range of sports, from soccer to baseball to basketball, and now we get to dive a little bit into the world of track and field. My guest for this episode is the 1984 Olympic 100-meter hurdles champion, Benita Fitzgerald-Mosley. Benita is part of a pretty exclusive club of U.S. Olympians who have won gold on home soil. Her success on the track bred a steady flow of confidence that she could take on anyone or anything. Now the head of community and impact at League Apps and president of Fund Play, Benita is giving back to the sports community and helping to provide youth sports opportunities to boys and girls in underserved communities. Benita is a true inspiration on and off the track. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, I'm excited to be joined by 1984 Olympic champion in the 100 meter hurdles. And she's now the head of community and impact at League Apps and the president of Fun Play. She is Benita Fitzgerald Mosley. Benita, thank you so much for joining us at the Steel Sports Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate, I appreciate being here. Yeah, and I, f- I figured we'd start off with, with your sports career. And l- let me ask you, I mean, does it ever get old being introduced as, <laughs> as an Olympic champion? It absolutely doesn't. And I was on a call yesterday. We, we hosted one of our next up uh, events that we do for the youth sports organizer community. And a former colleague from the U.S. Uh, Olympic and Paralympic Committee uh, was uh, one of the facilitators and he introduced me that way too. And uh, it was a bit surprising because I wasn't, you know, I'm not speaking, I'm just a participant. So uh, yeah, sometimes it just has a nice ring to it. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> so I, I, I want to ask you, how, how did you get started in track and field? And, and then how did you gravitate toward the hurdles? So I'm a child of two educators and, you know, they uh, certainly wanted my sister and I to be great students, but they also appreciated the value of extracurricular activities and wanted us to find our way. So they, they provided all kinds of access to, to different things. And I tried, there's a lot of trial and error. I tried softball, which I was not very good at, but the coach was, told me years later, um, yeah, when we saw you playing softball, there's no way I would have ever thought you'd end up being an Olympic champion in any <laughs> sport. I was kind of that bad. Uh, gymnastics didn't work out uh, all that well, although I loved it. Um, majorettes, uh, I tried violin, piano, which I was pretty good at, but not uh, great. Uh, but finally in middle school, I was on a gymnastics team. Uh, I was in the band playing flute and piccolo. Uh, ended up first chair band by the time I was in eighth grade. So I finally found my niche there. And uh, Coach Washington, who was my gymnastics coach in middle school, uh, she's kind enough to put me on the team. I don't think I could really do half decent was it uneven parallel bars. And she said, you know, Benita, you should come out for the track team. And this was seventh grade. So I'd already gone through sixth grade without running. And she said, I see you beat all the boys in, in uh, PE class. So you should you know, she'd come out and I never looked back. I mean, I 
run, won every race I competed in in middle school, started running the hurdles in middle school as well. And we had cinder tracks back then in middle school. And I never, I used to see girls fall all the time. And I was like, I'm not picking cinders out of my knees. So I'm going to stay upright. And so that's how I started. I, I'm very thankful to Coach Washington because she saw that I did have, didn't have any talent in gymnastics whatsoever and kind of redirected me a bit. So before we get to, to 1984 and, and you were an All-American at Tennessee, you, you had qualified for the Olympics, the 1980 Olympics that were boycotted by the U.S. and I was supposed to be in the Soviet Union. So how did, the, how did missing that opportunity really motivate you to, to get back in 1984? Yeah, I ended up being the only one of the three hurdlers that made the 1980 Olympic team to be able to come back in 1984 and compete. And so it was unfortunate for many of us. Uh, I think for me, thankfully, I was a freshman in college. And so I had four, well, three more years of comp- college intercollegiate competition uh, you know, consistent training, uh, you know, school, access to trainers and then best coaches and everything at Tennessee. So for three of those four years, I uh, was very well taken care of. In the fourth year, the which is actually my fifth year in school, and because I had uh, stretched out my engineering curriculum because, you know, it's an engineering curriculum and they wanted me taking six, five to six classes a quarter. We were in the quarter system at Tennessee at that time. And so the coach uh, offered me a five, fifth year scholarship at Tennessee, uh, the athletic department did. So that was wonderful. So I had to really, that fourth year, continue in the same rhythm I always had. You know, I was going to class during the day. I, I was still at Tennessee. I went and trained on the track with my same coaches and teammates and so I, I really was highly advantaged and, you know, really credit my school at Tennessee for providing that consistent uh, coaching and support that I got at Tennessee. So that's how I was able to keep, stay motivated. I was motivated as an intercollegiate athlete, going after NCAA championships and everything. And then I had the uh, amazing support system at Tennessee to, to help me. And then you qualify in, for the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Uh, on, on home soil. And, and yes. I, I watched the, the YouTube video of the 1984 uh-huh. final. It was great to watch that. And, uh, but I, I watched some other videos as well. And, and something that, that struck me, you talked about just your confidence level going into that 1984 final. And, and, you know, you had been so successful and you just, you had that confidence. So, you know, how can, how can confidence help drive people to success or to, to take on risks and new challenges? For me, uh, I finally got to the point in the summer of 84 where I had this epiphany that, you know, I I worked as hard or harder than my competitors. And I was standing on the track one afternoon after track practice. And I just thought to myself, why not you? You know, why why not you uh, to win the gold medal? Like I always would think of, oh, it's going to be this person or that person, or I hope to make the final, or gosh, it'd be great to get in the top three. No, why why top three? Why not on the top of the podium? And it was really the first time I'd had that kind of thought um, about me personally. And I brought that with me 
to the games. And in other words, I just wasn't going to settle for less than the gold medal. Now, you know, anything could happen in a 12 second hurdle race, but I, uh, I walked into that race and got into the blocks thinking I'm the Olympic champion. That's my race to win, you know? And uh, I, I, talk, I took that confidence with me and, you know, beat Shirley Strong by four hundredths of a second. And that's all it took, you know, to separate us from gold and silver. And so I think, you know, many times, what if I hadn't had that, you know, that, that epiphany? What if I had gone in there with, I hope to do this, I hope to, well, four hundredths of a second is a blink of an eye. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't take much to think to yourself, that could easily have been second place, third place, not on the podium. And so now throughout my life, I just take that confidence that I brought into that race uh, to say, I can run, you know, and win on the world's biggest stage in front of almost 100,000 people and millions around the world. If I can do that, I can muster up the courage and uh, whatever resources I need in order to win wherever I am. And so I just take that intestinal fortitude with me wherever I go and that confidence. And so you asked the question, how can other people do it? I think they have to think about what is the time when I've been on top of the victory stand? You know, when have I uh, triumphed over adversity? When have I been a winner in my life? And what did I do to get there? And just feed off of that same confidence that you had in that moment um, and think to yourself, if I could do it, then I can do it anytime. And, and I was thinking about confidence and, and success and, and tying them together. And, and I was just thinking, is it one of the, the chicken or the egg paradoxes? You know, is, can you have confidence before success? You know, what, what was it in your case? It, it sounds like, you know, you had the success and it, it built that confidence. Yes. So. Yeah, it definitely, the success fed, fed into my, um, increasing my confidence level. I had pretty low self-esteem as many middle schoolers do. Uh, 11, 12, 13. And I think, again, that, you know, Coach Washington identifying my talent and encouraging me. My band director was the same thing. My, my parents obviously were uh, amazing in that way and just encouraging me and pushing me and helping me uh, realize my talent and abilities and encouraging me to continue on. And so I try to do that same thing, you know, as a parent myself. And helping my kids identify their talents and their passions and, you know, providing that um, constant prodding in some cases they need, in some cases they need encouragement, sometimes they need inspiration. Uh, I wrote a, I call it a love letter to my daughter uh, on Saturday because she was having this dilemma about whether to run track only or to, Uh, take a position on the varsity volleyball team while she's supposed to be training for the outdoor track season. Indoor states are Monday. So after the state meet on Monday, she, you know, she, she's going to turn attention to volleyball and she's going to continue running or both. And how, what does both look like? And so I just wrote her It's a three page typewritten letter, believe it or not. It's the only time I've ever written her a letter in her whole life, but I really just wanted to tell her how proud I am. She's a straight A student. She's a, amazing athlete. She's got, you know, the world is her oyster and just lay out, you know, how amazing she is, but also what is it going to take in order for her to be able to manage both things and do them well 
uh, what the opportunity is for her in track, which is a higher opportunity than for volleyball, but she loves volleyball and it's a great sport and it boosts her self-esteem and friendships and all that. So she needs both in her life. She needs that that encouragement to be able to say, you know what, I can uh, achieve my goals. I can be on the varsity volleyball team and uh, have the fun that I want to have there, but I can also pursue a college scholarship in track and field. And I can do both, but it's, you know, what is it going to take? And I have what it takes to do that. And I just needed mm -hmm. to boost her confidence that she had what it took. And so she said, mom, that letter was so inspirational. <laughs> I was like, well, that was a point, damn it. That was a point, you know? So I love it. she uh, accepted the, the spot on the varsity volleyball team. This is a team that has a, several D1 prospects, three, well, one going to Stanford, Pepperdine, Oregon, um, and several others that have uh, offers. And so to be uh, just ride the bench on this team is a, is pretty amazing. And um, and then she and I, we talked to the college, uh, the track coach, and he was like, "Hey, we'll we'll work it out. You know, this is what we're going to do." So she just felt so much better going into this week and uh, going into the season that she can accomplish her goals on both sides. In an age where, where kids are always on their phone, it's it's nice to hear that she loved receiving a letter. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, I thought about it, but it's like this. You can't make a text that long. And, uh, <laughs> and I think I wanted her to have something she could have, you know, 20 years from now and look back on that letter to say, hey, this was the turning point, you know, when I mm -hmm. was able to uh, muster up the courage, the confidence to go after my goals, you know? That's very cool. What Was it... You know, after your track career, was it just a, a general love of sports? What was it something that happened in in your career that wanted you to to kind of stay in that in that sector? So my dad, um, as I said, is an educator. Uh, he got his master's degree in counseling, so he uh, was a math and science undergrad, math and science teacher, and then became a guidance counselor. So hence the reason I have an engineering degree. Um, he really pushed me in that direction. When I was in high school, he was my guidance counselor in high school. So he put my, did all my class schedule and everything and we had, you know, calculus and chemistry and math analysis. And it was just ridiculous schedule in high school. And uh, I was really good for nothing else but to major in engineering by the time he was finished with me. So I got an industrial engineering degree and uh, don't regret it at all, but I actually, um, was an engineer when I first transitioned out of track. Uh, I was working for a few defense contractors. In fact, I did it part-time for a few years while I was still competing. So that was my first uh, career path. And I realized working as much respect and admiration and quite frankly, gratitude I have for people in the military. I just didn't have a passion for working on the Abrams, uh, you know, M1A1 tank or the Seawolf submarine. It just wasn't my uh, path. It wasn't my passion. So I actually got a call from another Olympic gold medalist and the hammer throw, Hal Conley. Uh, and he was working at Special Olympics International in DC. And I was back here in Virginia by that time. And uh, so I went to work for Special Olympics as a regional director. So that was my first taste of working in sport. And I thought, oh, I mean, I can work in sport and I don't have to work out every day for four or five, four or five hours a day. 
and I can have the passion and the fun of being in this arena and I don't have to train. Like I, I was thrilled. Sign and me up. Yeah. The thought never occurred to me that I could do that. And by the way, I can help people at the same time, you know, these wonderful special Olympians. So I thought, oh, I can do good in the world. I can be in the sports world. Uh, and that was definitely my passion. And I always think to myself, if I had known that I could be a, you know, a sports scientist, then I probably would have majored in that, in, you know, in school, kind of had the engineering technical um, application to sport. But I didn't know that at the time. So, yeah, that was that was how I transitioned into sport. And I ended up working in Atlanta for the Olympic committee there in marketing and then uh, running the Olympic training centers for the U.S. Olympic committee. Made a pivot to go to the cable industry for eight or nine years as CEO of Women in Cable and then came back to sport and I've never left. Uh, this is my, this is where I'm staying. I'm not going anywhere now. I realized, and then I loved working in the cable industry. Don't get me wrong. Those are some amazing women and, and working, you know, with all the top executives in, in, uh, in that industry was, was truly fun and very fulfilling. Uh, but I, I got the, 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 the kind of um, bug again. Uh, when I had, um, oh, I can't think of her name all of a sudden. She's an Olympic swimmer, uh, Dara Torres, speak at a Women in Cable event and just listen to her speak. And then I got an offer from USA Track and Field. And I was like, I'm done. I got to go. <laughs> yeah. So why was League Apps a fit for you and an exciting new challenge? It is an exciting new challenge. I'm challenged every day trying to figure out what ear is and ARR is. I'm sorry, Matt. I'm just, you know, I'm just getting used to all the lingo um, because it's a SaaS company and we, you know, we make money as people transact on our platform. And so understanding what, what the business side is for league apps, what the business goals are, aligning uh, what we're doing around building this youth sports uh, industry, uh, and helping with professional development, uh, helping uh, with access for kids through our fun play initiative, and then helping the professional leagues uh, build out their strategy for how they want to impact youth sports. That's a pretty large kind of varied remit that I have. And uh, it was just very attractive. I had met uh, Jeremy uh, Goldberg, our president, through our work with the Play Sports Coalition. Both of us are on the steering committee. And I got to know Matt uh, that way. And I got to know uh, a couple other people on our uh, on our team. And so I was just excited uh, to have an opportunity to flex my muscle in a different way, you know, being an engineer and then being a um, an athlete. And so having the experience as a, as a youth athlete and then having kids who participate in youth sports, it's just near and dear to my heart. I know the power that sports can have, uh, as we were talking about my daughter, but my son was a basketball player as well. Uh, he's at Morehouse College now as a junior. And so it's, um, it, it's so important to provide positive youth sports experience for experiences for kids and League Apps facilitates that for thousands of organizations across the country. So I'm proud to be a part of the team and it was a very attractive opportunity for me to be able to, like I said, flex different muscles, but also continue the work I've been doing uh, just on the for-profit side of the business. And, and the work that you guys have been doing with Fun Play has just been incredible. The, the number of kids that you've impacted over 200,000 so far. And 
you know, just just the the work you're doing in the underserved communities. So what what are some of the ways that underserved communities need help the most? Wow. Um, you know, when we look across the landscape of our um, partners, about 75% of our smallest partners have ceased operations since the pandemic began. Wow. And we're thinking a quarter of them probably won't come back. And so that's tough. And when we think, when I was at Laureus Sport for Good Foundation as, as their CEO for four or five years, it was focused on providing uh, financial support to underserved uh, so organizations and underserved communities providing sports-based youth development. So youth development through sport is a, is a huge uh, burgeoning industry, if you will. And it's a, a great way to provide support to kids to help them uh, achieve outcomes relative to their education or employment, health and wellness, certainly their social emotional development. And so the Fund Play grants provide technology grants to these same organizations to help uh, build their capacity to be able to run their organizations more efficiently. And we hope to ultimately serve more kids. And what we saw at Laureus is providing that grant was really just the beginning. Uh, the financial support is certainly welcomed and uh, very much needed. But we also know that there are other ways to help these organizations be better at what they do. And the better they are at what they do, uh, the better they serve the kids and the more kids they can serve. And so, uh, yeah, we, we're providing a little bit different way of supporting these, these organizations, but we're also looking at ways to help them on the professional development side by providing um, help with uh, tracking their impact through upmetrics or um, training their coaches through Positive Coaching Alliance. We have other integration partners with league apps that we're connecting them to. And uh, we're gonna do a fun play summit in uh, April that will uh, begin the process of this professional, regular professional development for them as well. Very good. And and I was going to ask you about the pandemic. And I mean, it's just it's it's staggering to know, of, of course, how many kids it's affected, but, you know, how many groups are going to be able to come back? How many organizations are going to be able to come back out of this? So how how can we be most effective to, to get kids back in playing sports as we start to open back up? Yeah, what I didn't say about my daughter is nine months ago, uh, sometime mid to late summer, she announced to me she wasn't going to play sports anymore. Um, and so she's like, mom, I don't, I'm not going to play nothing. No, you're not going to play volleyball, club volleyball. No school, but no run track. No, <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, what in the world is happening? You know? Uh, and it, it it's a funny, I, I remember talking to, to parents in the spring when everything shut down and all of us were crazed. I mean, Maya was then running track and club volleyball and, it was back and forth every weekend. It was some new place and a different tournament trying to juggle. She wasn't driving yet, getting her to practices and whatever. It's a nightmare trying to do all that. But then when it all stopped, all the parents were like, whoa, gosh, I miss, I miss, can I, can I go to a baseball game this weekend? Where's the soccer tournament? You know, I, I can't, you won't believe how many parents we were just commiserating about what we were missing in our lives. Uh, forget the kids, you know, we just enjoyed, you know, the trips and sitting on the sideline and everything else. So 
we as parents, our, our kids have gone through the emotional roller coaster. You know, a lot of kids, there's 30% of kids that have dropped out of sports and won't be coming back. She's one of the lucky ones that found her motivation again. And so I think that the organizations that these kids have had been affiliated with uh, really need to do a, a good job of reaching back out to these kids and finding a way that may not always be at the same level that they were at. Maya decided, you know, in order for me to focus on track more, I can't run, I can't play club volleyball. I can't be traveling all around. I can't compete, which, which was a track meet is. So I'm going to be a practice player on my volleyball team. She made that decision. That was her first kind of toe back in the water into sport. She realized she was a little burned out. And so I think some of these kids got a little burned out and they got a little taste of what it's like to not be running themselves ragged. And so I, I believe that having alternatives to it's not just the club sport it's not just the rec sport what is what can we do in between intramural kind of wise where it's competitive it's kind of like when kids go to college and they could be a d1 athlete or they can play club soccer and you know feel like they're competing against other schools and having that competitive juices flowing but they don't have the pressure of being a d1 athlete and i feel like our industry needs to find more opportunities like that where it's just not this high pressure situation, but the kids get to, you know, tip their toe, dip their toe back in the water to participate. And, and you talked about the, the power of sports as well. And, you know, maybe it's something that, that, that you've seen in your experiences, but, but how can the power of sports, how can that strengthen our communities? Wow. Uh, like I said, I saw, I have been seeing and, and began seeing when I was, um, at Laureus, the power that sport has to trans transform communities. And so we decided to double down on that thought by creating Sport for Good Cities in New Orleans, Atlanta, Chicago, and New York. Uh, they're all thriving. And what we found is that there are baseball organizations all over Atlanta. They don't talk to each other. Tennis organizations all over. They don't talk to each other. In fact, they never met each other. They didn't collaborate. They didn't share resources, they didn't share facilities, they didn't do any of that stuff. And wow. uh, by just introducing the organizations to each other, forget any kind of programming or funding or anything else, the simple act of introducing and creating a coalition of sports-based youth development organizations in these cities increased the power that they had in their own organizations and, and increased the number of kids. So in, in uh, New Orleans, we started, uh, and they had 10,000 kids participating among the six grantees that we had in New Orleans. And just two years later, they were serving 50,000 kids. So they went six organizations from 10,000 kids to 50,000 kids in just two years because of the collaboration, the sharing of best practices, obviously uh, some, uh, some additional funding that they got. But we, we realized that that uh, community building is really important. And so we've done some work at, at League Apps with the Play Sports Coalition. A couple of us, Jeremy and I both uh, serve on the, on the steering committee. We have several staff at League Apps that do PR and they do uh, some of the advocacy work that we've been working on, uh, grassroots support. And it's a coalition of 4,000 new sports organizations across the country. And so there's power in numbers, there's power in collaboration, there's power in coalition building. 
And that's really where the power of sport is most evident uh, in supporting uh, youth sport, the best practice of youth sport, great coaching, high quality youth sports experiences, and uh, providing that guidance and support to as many organizations as possible. Because once you show them the way, uh, then you know most of them say, yeah, I'd rather have a high quality coach and well-trained coach and safe experience for, for the kids in my organization. Nobody doesn't want to do that. It's just that uh, they don't all have the wherewithal or the, the information to be able to do that. So uh, building these coalitions, whether local or national, I think is a key to unlocking a lot of that. You're continuing to work with coaches through league apps. Obviously coaches are the backbone of what we do here at Steel Sports. So how, how do coaches play such an important role in the development of today's youth? They're, they're mentors for sure. And these kids watch everything these coaches do and uh, what they do, how they're treated, uh, whether they're treated equitably or not, whether the, the coach is all about winning and not about lessons uh, and helping develop the talent in these kids and investing in them personally. Uh, they, these kids know uh, which coaches are in it for the right reasons and which ones aren't. Um, and my son for sure had his share of uh, coaches that weren't in it for the right reasons. They didn't appreciate either in the high school or on the club side their the impact they were having on these kids and their mental uh, and emotional well-being. And but I think that coaches first and foremost have to have is that. And the X's and O's of the game. Uh, I, I won't say who cares whether they win or lose, but it's almost irrelevant because most of these kids. I think it's just 6% of all high school athletes play at any level of college sports, 6%. And so uh, that's D1, D2, D3, community college, 6%. And so the youth athlete, whether it's a club or it's their high school and those coaches, that that may be the only competitive uh, sports experience these kids have. And it's so foundational to their personal development that making sure these coaches are trained, making sure they're there for the right reasons is important. The good news for me is that uh, aside from my son, I think that Maya has been really uh, fortunate to have some great coaches that are certainly there for the right reasons and have been there for her. I personally had a slew of amazing coaches throughout my whole track career. I can't, I mean, I love them all dearly. They're still alive and well. and I'm still in touch with all of them. And so it's, I feel very fortunate uh, to have had coaches that just poured themselves into me personally and, and also obviously as, as track coaches as well. Besides a, a registration platform, League Apps, it's an incredible communication tool. And, and I've heard you speak on the, on the topic of communication. So, you know, Curious to get your thoughts about why communication is so important to building a strong culture and not just in sports, but in, in all walks of life. Right. I think it's providing that accessibility to uh, sport in a, you know, through technology. It's a, it's a great level leveling tool um, that, that, uh, that exists everywhere. Everybody has access to now. Most people do uh, a mobile device and computer and, 
you know, a way to get online. And so we pride ourselves in providing that positive sports experience, not only for the organizer, but for the parents and the, the youth involved as well. We are uh, over the course of the next few weeks, rolling out a, a new um, uh, League Apps Play app. Uh, we're called League Apps and people always ask, why do we have an app? And we've had uh, branded apps for our organizers for a while now, but this one will be more public facing and that's um, really interesting and another level setter, you know, something that everybody will have access to that uh, whose clubs are on, on our platform. So that, you know, those kinds of things, I think um, make make for really great um, increasing accessibility for for kids and for youth and parents. That's great. That's great. Uh, and, and going back to, to fun play, you know, how do you continue to impact the kids that you've already reached? And, and I know the goal is to reach five hundred thousand by the end of twenty twenty two. Yeah. So so what about long term and the goals after twenty twenty two? But how do you continue to impact the the ones that you have reached? You know, it's funny. I think uh, some of these they're grassroots nonprofit organizations. They you know they have a spreadsheet and they're good. You know, uh, helping these organizations understand the power of the technology, the power of data. Uh, to help drive not only uh, more efficient operations, but more uh, and better outcomes. They're, they're looking to help these kids you know, break out of some of the circumstances and the trauma that they may have experienced and being able to track the progress of those kids and the program uh, through the data that they're generating on our platform and through our platform uh, partners they are able to then prove uh, their worth to funders and get more money into their organizations and then, you know, able to better serve the kids and their communities. And so helping them connect all those dots when, when really they're focused on the kids, they're focused on just running the program and coaching and finding the right facilities and uh, those kinds of things to help them understand this pause just long enough to say, okay, I can, get on this platform for free. I can operate on this platform for free. These are the ways it's going to help me. And those that do get it. And, and we're just having a, uh, it's a slow going a bit, just getting other organizations into the pool. What I hope over the course of the next couple of years, yes, we'll, we'll get to our goal of, of impacting uh, half a million kids. But like you said, I mean, it, the, the sky's the limit, really. There's so many organizations out there that could use and need our help. We just want to find them all and, you know, get them involved and, and help them uh, serve their kids better. And we're, we're chatting today's February 26th. Uh, it's Black History Month. And, you know, when you won the gold medal in 1984, you, you made history as the, the first African-American woman from the United States to, to win the gold in the hurdles. So if, if there's one thing that you want others to, to, learn or understand uh, regarding Black History Month, you know, what would it be? I think, you know, I think about leadership and legacy. My, my parents uh, talked about them earlier, but my mom helped to uh, integrate the public school system here in Prince William County, which uh, is the second largest county in the, in the state of Virginia. We're a bedroom community, if you will, for, for DC. So lots of military, lots of government workers, lots of 
now with all the technology in this area as well. But uh, it's a huge county. Um, we're building our 14th high school here in this county. It's like, oh, it's a wow. huge county. <laughs> yeah. And they're all overcrowded. Let's be, they, all three, they all have three and 4,000 kids in them. That's so incredible. It's, it's growing. It's huge. It's, um, yeah, it's huge. So my mom, uh, back in the mid-60s, was approached by the, the school school uh, superintendent to be of one, one of four Black teachers to lead their all-Black elementary school and go and teach in an all-white elementary school. And so they call them the Courageous Four. Uh, they went, taught for the year in these classrooms. They were very smart and put military kids in those classrooms and they were, had been integrated years before. And in other parts of Virginia, they had ceased operations uh, in order to keep from integrating their school systems. And so Princeton County didn't want to have that fiasco happen. And so they were kind of putting their toe in the water. It worked. And a year later, they integrated the public school system here in Prince William County, clearly never went back. So there's a school named after my mom, uh, Fannie W. Fitzgerald Elementary School, and it sits on a street that's named after me for winning the gold medal. So the address is 15500 Benita Fitzgerald Drive. And so it's, um, you know, her legacy permeates our family. My dad's legacy, President of Lions Club, and, you know, on the local community college board of directors and uh, an amazing guidance counselor and educator. Uh, and so they instilled in us, you know, the, the, the idea, you don't just get, get stuff, you, you got to give back. And so being, uh, giving back through fun play, giving back through the Play Sports Coalition, the Women's Sports Foundation, U.S. Olympic Committee. However, I've been able to, to work in and support nonprofit organizations throughout my career, I, I look at my gold medal as the gift that keeps on giving. And so I, my, I want my legacy to be that I was able to help people uh, win gold medals in their own lives and do that in you know, ways large and small. So to me, that is the point, you know, use your gifts, use your leadership to, to leave a legacy of, of uh, uh, good, good works and you know, helping other people achieve uh, the greatness in them as well. That's such a great story. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds like your parents were obviously a huge inspiration for you. And, you know, you're an inspiration for not only your kids, but countless numbers of other kids. And so I, I, I want to talk about being a sports parent. And, you know, what is what is one piece of advice? And, and you had already talked about, uh, you know, your daughter and, you know, kind of finding that motivation during, during the pandemic, but uh, in terms of kids going through the pandemic right now and, mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to get some back to some semblance of normalcy, you know, what is one piece of advice that, that you would give to other youth sports parents? You gotta, you gotta meet them where they are and you gotta, in many ways, you know, just give them the information they need to make a decision. It, we, we can't, particularly the older they get, I mean, if they're five or six years old, it's a different story, but if they're, 17, like my daughter, a junior in high school, she's juggling, you know, we're studying for the SAT. She's uh, going to have AP exams in a couple of months. It's, it's a lot on these kids. And uh, the pandemic, this ongoing drip, drip, drip of pressure and anxiety that we all carry around with us uh, relative to the pandemic is real. And so pushing them too hard is just going to make them back up. And if you just sit there and leave them to their own devices, most likely they probably aren't going to do much. So 
you got to find that happy medium of providing the, the information that they need, the encouragement they need, and tell them, you know, that you love them regardless of what decision they make, uh, but that you, uh, it, the decision is theirs and theirs alone. But here, you know, here are your options, here are the pros and cons, and allow them, you know, trust them to make the right decision. And to me, I think when you do that and kind of step back a little bit, give them some space to make a good decision, they'll, they'll make a good decision for themselves. Benita, thank you. It, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And, and I know you've been uh, a huge part of what we've been doing at Steel Sports the last, uh, the last couple of months and, you know, being a part of our Coach of the Year Awards program and now joining us on the podcast. And, you know, I hope we can uh, continue working together in the future. Absolutely. You guys are doing amazing work and it was so much fun doing that Coach of the Year um, broadcast with you guys. And, uh, you know, coaches all over the country, I think, are, are looking at you guys and participating in your programs and realizing that they can do good and do well at the same time. And I think that's a testament to Steel Sports and kind of your philosophy and your mission. And, you know, you're to be congratulated for that. Thank you. And the same to league apps, you guys are doing incredible work as well. So keep it up and uh, we'll, we'll keep working together. We will. Thank you, Benita. Thank you. Benita Fitzgerald Mosley was a powerful force on the track and she certainly hasn't slowed down. After winning a gold medal, she didn't rest on her laurels. She continued to work hard and use her confidence to take on new challenges, achieve great things and make a difference wherever she went. We're lucky to have her in our corner now in youth sports, using the power of sports to impact communities and change lives. If you want to learn more about League Apps Fun Play Initiative, log on to leagueapps.com backslash funplay, F-U-N-D-P-L-A-Y. That concludes another episode of the Steel Sports Podcast. We appreciate our listeners and ask that you please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. You can find us on all the major podcast outlets, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, iHeart, and others. Till next time, thanks for listening.